Hey Osiris listeners, we hope you're doing well out there. We have a brand new show, Undermine, which premieres today. In this show, we take a dive into Fish's history, starting with the early years, from 1983 to 1989. In just a minute, you're going to hear episode one in full. We have a whole season of amazing episodes about the early years of Fish, and we can't wait for everyone to hear them all. If you're not subscribed to Undermine, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure you're subscribed. We hope you'll all be companions on this ride. And here's episode one. I sensed complete dedication to, to practicing. You know, like they practiced a lot and they were, I, I never really thought about in those days where they were headed. Like what was this gonna be when it grew up? I wasn't necessarily surprised when they reached each milestone because every step of the way they kept proving how good they were. I remember um, coming home to Princeton at Thanksgiving and telling everybody I knew, keep an eye on these guys. I, I have a feeling. And that would have been like 83 or 84. And a lot of it was just looking at like how much fun they were having when they were playing. Like you could just tell it was just, they were doing their thing. And it just, oh, by the way, happened to be really, really good. Trey was in a sense teaching fish some of these weird rhythms. They were rhythms I've, I've never heard before. You know, and, and they're bizarre, they were wild but they're part of what, it's part of the fabric of what makes the fish music so special, you know? In 1983, the world was a different place. The United States was in the midst of a Cold War that wouldn't end for another eight years. A gallon of Hood brand milk cost about a dollar, and a movie ticket was roughly three bucks. Everything seemed bigger in the 80s. The hair, the boombox stereos, even belts were bigger. On the radio, Songs like Prince's 1999, David Bowie's Let's Dance, and Who Could Forget, Michael Jackson's Thriller, were all released for the first time. There was electricity in the air, a feeling like the world was on the cusp of something new. Record labels were bowing to MTV. New groups were hitting it big on the radio. Gated drums and synthesizers were all over music, and in the fall of 1983, a red-headed guitarist born in Texas was getting ready to start freshman year as a philosophy major at the University of Vermont in Burlington, a burgeoning community of creativity and progressive ideas. Bernie Sanders was mayor. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield were building their new ice cream business. Jake Burton began introducing his snowboard to the world and Fish was just beginning to rise up from their dorm rooms and come together. My name is Tom Marshall, songwriter for Fish, longtime friend of the bands. I'll be your tour guide on this journey through the musical cosmos of Fish. Sorry. As we undermine the foundations of fish knowledge and get to the truth of the band's history. You may know me from writing the lyrics to some of Fish's songs, such as Bouncing Around the Room, Chalk Dust Torture, Rift, and the lyrics to every vocal jam at the end of You Enjoy Myself. I'll be your host, your guide, your captain on this voyage. 
as we've relocated, not retired. This is the beginning of a new adventure, diving into fish like never before. Throughout the first season of Undermine, we'll analyze fish's early history in Burlington in the 1980s, interviewing early fans, friends, and collaborators to understand the stories of the people that helped fish become the most popular band in New England. We'll be looking at the starting pieces to the fish puzzle, focusing on the scene that formed in Burlington in the 1980s. I first met fish guitarist Trey Anastasio in the eighth grade of Princeton Day School in New Jersey. There were about six bands in our grade and Trey was the drummer in many of them. I had a keyboard and was in a few, but one was called And Back, and that was my favorite band. And that was started with my friends drummer Mark Daubert and guitarist Dave Abrahams. And we eventually swore we would only play original music, songs that we wrote. Mark Daubert actually wound up in Fish briefly as a percussionist a bit later. In fact, eight people in that Princeton Day School class of 1982 wound up in Burlington after high school, most of them at the University of Vermont. We'll talk to a couple of them who cross paths very closely with Trey and other Fish members. Around the time that Trey was making the decision to transition from playing drums to guitar, we started hanging out a lot and collaborating on ideas. Even when Trey was sent to the Taft School in Watertown, Connecticut, our sophomore year, we remained friends. I would just send Trey wacky stuff and hand him lyrics and poems when I saw him. In 1984, Trey got kicked out of University of Vermont and I got kicked out of Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And we both transferred to Mercer County Community College near Princeton in New Jersey, reigniting our connection to write songs together. One day, I was walking out of class as Trey was walking in, and he said, do you want to go and set up a recording studio in my dad's basement and record music with me? Suffice it to say, we didn't go back to class. In this episode, we'll hear from many of the people who were there in the very early days of Fish. We'll get into memories from UVM, Goddard College, Hunts, and many more. Thank you for joining us for episode one of Undermine. We're happy to bring you as companions on this ride. Could you imagine living in the room below a future rock star drummer in college? What if the universe randomly chose you to live below John Fishman himself, smashing the cymbals, thumping the bass drum, beating the snare, all as you tried to study? On one hand, you probably wouldn't be able to sleep much at night, but on the other, you would have been experiencing the rhythmic foundation of one of the best drummers in music of the last 40 years. Always, always drumming. And at all hours of the night, of course, it's a freshman dorm. That's Lindsay McCord Norman. She was a student at UVM that lived within earshot of Fishman's dorm room. No one is sleeping anyway, but there were drums just constantly and good drums. I remember thinking, you know, this guy's good. It never bothered me. I never, um, I, I never complained. I don't think anyone did. It was just a thing. Today, Lindsay is a school administrator in Savannah, Georgia. It's unusual that a grade school and high school classmate of mine and Trey's randomly wound up living below his future drummer. 
She was with me and Trey in the Princeton Day School class of 1982 before going to UVM to double major in French and European studies. I was a freshman in uh, room 310, Patterson Hall, UVM, Redstone Campus. John Fishman lived in 410, Patterson Hall. And I mean, suffice it to say that drumming is definitely part of the playlist of my freshman year soundtrack of my memories. <laughs> After freshman orientation, outside on the grassy lawn of Howe Library at UVM, Trey spotted John Fishman, an eccentric chemical engineering student and drummer with tie-dye down to his knees, big hair, and chunky glasses. Trey describes it as love at first sight. He asked himself, oh my God, who is that guy? Sometime later, Trey heard Fishman drumming and immediately ran to grab his guitar and amp. The two quickly became friends and started playing together, marking the genesis of a lifelong musical partnership, a bond rooted in a devotion to a dream. Trey says that it's always been the easiest thing in the world to play with Fishman. Their relationship is grounded in not taking life too seriously. Sometimes when Fish was about to enter serious practicing territory, Trey would start playing the song Hold Your Head Up by Argent, knowing Fishman hated it. Sometimes he would storm out of the room he disliked it so much. As a prank, the song entered Fish's repertoire and has been played ever since its debut in 1987. Trey makes his way over to the drums and Fishman grabs his baby blue Electrolux vacuum and will sometimes, if we're lucky, suck for the people. To understand the essence of Fish, it's important to understand the friendship between Fishman and Trey. In late 2020, when Trey finished the Beacon Jams, an eight-week residency at the Beacon Theater in New York streamed into thousands of fans' homes on Twitch, he said that sometimes he'll ponder his own mortality and that when that day comes to enter the long line of souls past, he hopes that between he and Fishman, he will be the one to go first. And I remember asking him, so, so where did Fish come from? The first answer is obvious, because everyone called John Fishman Fish at the time. And Fish was such a character, you know? So in essence, that's one aspect of it. The band is named Fish. It's named after him. But then Trey also said that he loved the sound. He loved the sound fish. That's what he'd go, fish, fish. And so that's the other aspect of it. And there you go. That's, the, that's how it all started, you know? That's Steve Pollock, also known as the Dude of Life. He co-wrote songs like Run Like an Antelope, Susie Greenberg, Fluffhead, and Slave to the Traffic Light. Trey started at uh, friendship with Fishman, and then Trey put an ad in the paper for a bassist, and Mike answered the ad, and uh, next thing you know, things were taken off, and, and Jeff was on board. Trey met Jeff Poldsworth, a sophomore electrical engineering student and fellow guitarist who lived in the same dorm. Jeff, Mike Gordon, another electrical engineering student, Fishman, and Trey started a band. The four students became the Colonel of Fish. They started a blaze from one tiny spark, a blaze that has burned brightly for more than 30 years from that moment. The two of them started working on these drum rhythms together. And at the time, they would come up with these super bizarre drum rhythms. And it, you know, they, but they spent a lot of time. And at the end, 
I'd be scratching my head like, this is kind of bizarre. But then years later, I'd hear those same little rhythms in like maze or something like that. It's, and then I'd say to myself, oh, now it all makes sense, right? So, but when you hear these little percussion things soloed, they sound really weird. <laughs> the song Mackie Supa Policeman that I made up with my neighbor Chris LaRiche in the third grade comes to mind. Fish can easily go from playing a heavily complex composed song and instinctively transition into a whimsical reggae bop. I sang Mackie Supa Policeman to Trey once as a joke, and the next thing I knew, it was a fish song. Hey, Mackie Supa Policeman, Policeman came to my house. At the merch table, you know her, you love her. I want everybody to give her a kiss on the way out. The one and only. First fish fan ever. The first person ever to come to a fish fan. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Amy Skelton. I'm Amy Skelton, and um, gosh, the first fish fan. How did I become the first fish fan? I think. It was because at the very first shows, I was a friend of Fishman's. We'd already met, we'd become fast friends before he had met the rest of the band members. And I was present at pretty much all of them, all of those early gigs, because we were hanging out. So it was like, you know, what are you doing this evening or this afternoon? Well, that sounds fun, I'll do that too. <laughs> so I was kind of along for the ride because we were, we were buds. We had a pile of laundry and a full set of drums and a mattress on the floor and uh, and a roommate <laughs> the, the, for a while until he, got, he'll, until he left that dorm, I guess. There was a lot of uh, dorm shifting in that year, as I recall. In an interview from 1996, Fishman said he spent his freshman year waking up at 5 a.m., dropping acid, and then going back to sleep, only to rise again at 7.30 with psychedelic consequences using the new feelings as creative inspiration to drum all day long. Yeah, later after I met John, I put the two together that the drumming above my room was him. And, you know, we, I remember having lunch with him in the in the lunchroom and in uh, on Redstone after walking on the path together, let's go have lunch kind of thing, you know, once with him and remembering that he was a really, you know, decent, nice and friendly and funny person that I enjoyed uh, meeting. He's a memorable person, isn't he? <laughs> no, mu music was oxygen for him. It really was. Fish also became oxygen for fans. Short of breath in a world suffocated by mass-produced music and superficial priorities. One of these early fans Billy Ross Messler was also in trays in my class at Princeton Day School. Billy, an environmental engineer now in Montpelier, Vermont, and fellow student back at UVM, remembers attending a lot of the early fish shows at the pub Doolin's on Main Street in Burlington, one of the band's first steady gigs. We all went to college in 82. Trey obviously came a year later. I was on campus my freshman year in a dorm, and then my second year I was still on campus, but I lived in a, an environmental dorm called Slate Hall, which was just a huge house. 
which was really cool. And then after those first two years, I lived off campus for three or four more years. And I lived in town for a year or two, and then that's when I moved out to the ranch uh, out in Charlotte, which is where Paige was already living, I think, at the time. Uh, this would have been 85, 86, 87. In 1985, Paige McConnell, a keyboardist and student at Goddard College, an experimental liberal arts school in Plainfield, Vermont, booked Fish for the annual Goddard Spring Fest, and after hearing them play, expressed interest in joining. Though at the time, Trey and John remained steadfast that Fish was a two-guitar band, a belief that changed when Jeff left in 1986. That house had revolving doors, people coming in and out, um, roommates just constantly transitioning. There were a lot of people that lived in that house over the time. I knew I knew Paige early on because I knew the band right when they were started. Obviously, I knew Trey, and then as soon as they started playing, I was pretty much at every single gig they did. When Fish started playing regularly, it was easy to get hooked because each show built upon the last like no other concert experience. Their shows were different each night. They explored jams based on the energies that existed in themselves at that moment in time and in the vibrations of the audience. Where else could you hear Frank Zappa and Led Zeppelin covers played alongside a story about a colonel from Long Island and his quest to retrieve the Helping Friendly book to save the lizard people of Gamehenge? Fish used venues like the ranch in South Burlington to push the boundaries of their sound. In fact, the first known video recording of a fish show is from the ranch on May 20th, 1987. The band played under a bright yellow canopy on a sunny spring day in front of a giant tie-dye tapestry. Trey's jeans are ripped. You can barely see Mike's eyes, his hair is so long. And the small crowd is vibing to the music and engaging in conversations. And so everybody was friends and, and there was a lot of uh, cross-pollination, everyone playing together. And then uh, eventually it was myself and, and, and uh, Wayne Stout and Kent Weber that got the ranch. And uh, then one of the members of the Joneses was really good friends with Paige, uh, Steve Drever. And then he moved into the ranch in uh, fall of 1986. That's Eric Larson. He lived at the ranch along with Billy and Paige and hosted two incredible shows there in the summer of 1987, bookending a summer when he watched Trey's dog, Marley, as the band toured the Northeast. The other great show at the ranch was that uh, one that was filmed. Kent Weber uh, was a roommate there, and he just apparently bought a, a video camera, which no one had a video camera, no one had a phone. You gotta remember, it was just still shots at that point. So he purchased that right before that show, which was really a UVM graduation. So Mike was graduating UVM. So that was a, that was a really a graduation party. And uh, Kent set up his uh, recorder and we actually have an entire set of fish, early stuff. So 1987, uh, Trey has the, 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 uh, the jeans on and fish has got the, you know, got the clothing and everybody looks a little different, let's just say. And, uh, we have it on film. And then they did for the final song, they did alumni blues. So they brought the Joneses up because it was a, a double header. It was fish Jones, fish Jones, uh, you know, double header. So they all came up and did alumni blues for the graduation set. The ranch is also the location of an epic David Bowie jam from August 29th, 1987, that we will be discussing in episode three of Undermine.
Paige said to Mike, um, hey, can you ask Trey? Maybe I could try out for the band. So Mike then went to Trey and said, hey, my, my roommate Paige is a really good keyboardist, wants to try out. And initially Trey said, no, I really always saw this as a two guitar band. Trey said no, so then Mike went back and gave Paige the message. He said, yeah, well, Trey really sees it as a two guitar band. And you know, Paige, Paige's reply was, that's okay, I'll be in the band. He just knew, Paige knew. He's very, very confident. And, and the bottom line is, Fish would never be what it is without Paige. Paige had the nickname Dad. Uh, he was like the dad of the band. He, he really pulled things together because at that time, I don't, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think Fish and Trey and Mike could have pulled it off by themselves. Paige was a force that was, that took it to the next level. In 1986 and 1987, Amy Skelton would drive her extended Chevy truck with a futon nestled in the cargo bed to the Stone Church, a music club in New Hampshire, immersing in a hippie music scene and spreading the word about fish. So I was down at the Stone Church, you know, hanging out down there, and I was making friends with a bunch of New Hampshire kids. Like, you know, I had met the whole hippie scene or, you know, Grateful Dead music scene, you know, good music scene, let's say, in in New Hampshire. And all of those kids, I, I had been going to all of those parties and going to see all of those bands. And I had tapes with me of the band and was, and I was, you know, copying tapes and copy, you know, just copying them the music for anybody who would, I thought remotely would, you know, have a hope of listening, playing it all the time for my friends, driving around in a big truck. What Amy is describing is how Fish grew their fan base. By allowing fans to freely record their live performances, Fish could spread their music to as many people as possible, organically growing their audience. Devoted fans trading tapes, eagerly showing their friends what they've found, hoping they will love it just as much as they do. This was a foundational aspect of how the Fish scene evolved into what it is today. Tapes also allowed new fans to catch up on earlier chapters of the Fish story. By immersing themselves in previous shows, fans had more context to feel like they were in on the joke, a part of the family. At some point in 88, Mike actually asked, the white tape was out by then, and there were copies of that around. The white tape was Fish's first album, featuring songs that I happened to sing a little part on, like Divided Sky, Slave to the Traffic Light, Run Like an Antelope, and it also had an early a cappella version of You Enjoy Myself. The album was taped onto cassettes, remember those? And started being passed around in 1986. I had a couple of those in my vehicle all the time. At some point in 88, Mike asked if I would consider managing the band and taking a percentage to manage. And I said, I said, no, I can't do that right now because I'm going to horseshoe, horseshoeing school in the fall. <laughs> Well, I had been an equestrian. My, my job in New Hampshire was taking care of a horse farm, and and I'd been a I'd been a riding instructor for forever, and uh, but I had never I was becoming a, a certified horseshoer, so uh, I I said no, and went off to become a horseshoer, and um, or just to add that to my list of of horsey endeavors, uh, and then I think it was later that year that uh, he offered it to Paluska. John Paluska 
became the band's manager in 1988 and was responsible for helping Fish go from a northeast bar band to playing in small amphitheaters and later in arenas across the country. But it was all for the best. Like, uh, there's, there's, there is no question that John Paluska was the right man for that job for, you know, for those, those years for sure. He totally kicked ass. Amy was looking to hang out with the hip kids on campus, eager to immerse herself around music and a scene that was new, exciting, pushing the boundaries of fun. She attended many of Fish's first gigs and remembers that not everyone fell in love with the music. There weren't a ton of, of people into sort of jam kind of music. Um, so the, they played in a dorm um, and it was a, uh, I can't remember what kind of party it was, but um, it didn't go over that well. <laughs> It wasn't really appreciated. People were kind of like yelling a little bit, you know, like, oh, my God, kind of frustrated with this hippie band. And uh, (laughs) bring back the good music, you know, like this is not danceable. And, you know, (laughs) there were were no fish bands because there was no, you know, there was no band, really. There were just a group of guys that were starting to play. And there were people who were friends of theirs who had come to see their friends jammed together in this like more formal formal format than on the stairwell or something. The modern 3.0 fish, actually, I think I have to finally concede that when COVID ends, we'll actually be in fish 4.0. In any case, the modern fish show with waves of people, thousands of fans hanging on every note is a different experience when compared to how the band started. But that spark the connection among the band members and their connection to us has always been there. Right off the bat, right off the bat, it was just so cool to see the uh, the connection between you know the musicians and you know I, th- there were a lot of my friends who played guitar or played other instruments and you know jamming on a stairwell. I'm, I'm you know I'm not kidding. I can't tell you how many hours I spent sitting on stairwells in various apartment buildings or houses or or dorms listening to various groups of friends who were capable musicians jammed together in a you know in a space that sounded good and stairwells were often you know those places so there was you know there were a lot of there was a lot of music being played but these guys when they got together were were good right off the bat they were clearly a- accomplished more so than the other people that I knew and then they just found a quick bond and they had a sense of humor right off the bat that you know, like if you were there, many, many times you'd go and listen, watch your friends who were in a band and you're watching them play some songs. But going to see these guys together was like watching them play some songs and having a bunch of laughs at the same time, even like right from the beginning, because there was a sense of humor always. All of them are like, they're like the Beatles. I mean, if you take away any of those band members, you don't have fish. And, and that's, that's something people got to realize. Each of them brings such a different, I don't know, energy and magic to the situation. And that's what it comes down to. It, it's that chemistry of the, their four personas together that create that magic. And it's, it's been astounding over the years because it just keeps on getting bigger, you know? And you know that as well as I do. The thing that I reflect on sometimes that what sets them apart to me is that um, they they were always to this day, I think, true to themselves. Like th- they just played their songs the way they wanted to play them. And they didn't care if everybody hated them. 
Um, like there were some songs that you're just like, are you kidding me? Like you're actually gonna play this? Burlington was the type of town where fish felt like they could experiment. You would run into friends on the street, and on the weekends, you could always hear good music emerging from bars and restaurants. It was a community, an incubator for innovation. At the time, UVM had, I think, 54 bars, and they were all doing great. So a lot of student body, we weren't really paying that much attention to classes. We were at the bars. 54 bars in one small town. It's not a big town, but they were all doing great. Well, for Burlington, Vermont, I mean, it's so homogeneous, like, to, yeah. And actually, reggae took off. Like, lamb spread should be, you know, they should get kudos for reggae really took off in Burlington. We, we started the reggae fast, and it turned into a huge thing. Um, but, yeah, none of those gigs, whether it was lamb spread or, or fish or Joneses or um, especially Unknown Blues Band, I don't remember ever going to any one of those gigs and not having competition for the dance floor. Like there was always, they were packed. And it was because all of those guys, all those bands were, they were great music. Their first gig at Hunt's felt like a huge step forward for the band. And once they started consistently playing at Nectar's, they got into a groove where new fans were showing up each night. Due to academic and behavioral challenges and an increased feeling that UVM was an inflexible institution focusing on grades instead of creativity, Trey and Fishman joined Page at Goddard College. Page also apparently received a $50 finder's fee for each band member he recruited as a new student. The non-traditional academic environment and a rural surrounding offered an opportunity for the band to fully express themselves. I think at the the shows at Goddard allowed the band a sense of freedom that they didn't they didn't they couldn't get at another venue like Hunts or the Front or you know one of those established venues at Goddard they were free to be the band that they wanted to be Nobody went anywhere, no one drove. Everybody tented or slept over or whatever. Like the, the, the dorms were full of, full of people sleeping after the show. Um, so it was a safe place to, um, to really explore. And I think it, you know, that's, that planted a seed for future gigs, for sure. That freedom, that sense of freedom to, to, be, in, and to be and be with the audience and, and make it a group event, you know, group concept kind of. The band didn't know at the time that in about 10 years, they would be playing in some of the world's most famous arenas. If you were to ask any member of Fish how to get to Madison Square Garden, they would say, practice, practice, practice. With each milestone, I wasn't, su I wasn't necessarily surprised when they reached each milestone because every step of the way they kept proving how good they were. Through, through the music that they played, you know, I, I was, you know, I would just be, looking around the audience proud and 
looking to see crowd reaction because I knew that people would be impressed. And we were friends with these neighbors next door and they'd come over and before you know it, they're like 10, 12 people all playing percussion in the house. And it was just unbelievable. And then, you know, after like a couple hours, I'd be like, oh, I, gotta, I gotta get some lunch. And I'd go out, get lunch and I'd come back. And then there'd be even more people when I return, you know? And, and then I'd jump right back in and we'd play even more percussion. And so that was, that was a, an incredible thing, you know? Many, many, many parties. We have many parties at the ranch, like too many to count. Some were what I would call our kind of living room gigs where we had, it was a tiny, it was a, not a big living room. And we, had, we would just move the sofa back and the band would play kind of in the corner. And people would just like, there wasn't enough room to dance or anything. It was just space and time for them to, to play and have fun. And we all benefited from that. So those living room gigs were really intimate. Very few people there. Just maybe, you know, the people that lived in the house and then, you know, two or three people per person. And, you know, so maybe two dozen people, three dozen people. But then we had huge, when the weather was good, we would have huge blowout parties outside, like huge, um, hundreds of people. And that's when we would have, and in, in both the indoor and the outdoor gigs, we would have dueling bands often. The Joneses would be there because the Joneses, members of the Joneses lived at the ranch also. So Steve Drebber was the drummer. Dan Pine was also the other drummer. The Joneses had two drummers. So we had members of both bands living in the same house which is why it all went down the way it did. So Fish would play a set and then they would go take a break and the Joneses would play a set. And then sometimes if somebody was didn't want to break for too long, they would stand in, you know, they would join in and they would just, it was just all intermixed. But the outdoor gigs were crazy fun. Like they would go, we would start at one or two in the afternoon and they would, they'd end at one or two at night. Here's Steve Drebber, the drummer for the Joneses, Fish's compatriots from the 1980s. Bars, clubs, dorms in Burlington, that kind of, you know, the college scene. Um, Fish and the Joneses were popular bands on campus in the early days, but it was really more of a punk and hip hop scene. And so like the campus newspaper wouldn't cover any of the hippie band stuff. They were all about like the pop music of the time. Fortunately, the college radio station brought many, many bands in. It didn't matter what you played. They bring you in and let you play for an hour because they needed content. Yeah, we hit most of the clubs and, you know, hunts and, you know, all the regular places. There was, gosh, there was like 13 bars in a three block radius that you could play music at. And we all lived in within a five block radius of downtown Burlington. Well, that first, the, the April Fool's 86 Festival of Fools show at Hunts where we co-build and alternated sets was the first time that we really co-build with Fish, even though we had been checking each other out and, you know, in the in the scene together. Um, for me, that was that was a fabulous show. And here's Jim Tassie, bass player for the Joneses, chatting about the budding scene in Burlington during the mid-80s. But you know the, the the scene in Burlington, like Steve says, there was this there was this you know this was the the heyday of kind of like um, you know the new wave kind of music, and that was a big scene, and and we were you know a bunch of deadheads and kind of hippie flavored. Reagan was president, and it was kind of fun because we we sort of like 
fell into this groove that almost like reproduced some of the whole West Coast San Francisco scene. I mean, we used to call Burlington the West Coast of the East. Um, and we had this like incredible scene of people who were, you know, just just gentle, loving people who were really cool. But the it's it really has to go to the Goddard 86, Goddard 87 Halloween shows, which were Ken Keesian epic absolute off-the-wall craziness. And then our keyboard player was um, Rob DeSaro, um, known these days as the Reverend Monkey, still playing music. All of us are still playing music in one form or another. Um, but, you know, the fish stuff at, at that point in time was, it, I, you, you couldn't just jump in and, and sit in with those guys. I mean, they were like, they're, you know, divided sky. You're not just going to sit in and figure that out. So, so you know, it was easier for them to come and play with us because our songs were a lot more just sort of, you know, straight and, and the jams would typically just sort of groove on, you know, no more than three chords. And um, so it was much easier for those guys who were, you know, just phenomenal musicians like i just remember the work ethic that those guys had in the early days just um all day rehearsals just play 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 and and uh, you know and, and and the uh the little uh the little um exercises they would do to kind of just like hone their uh interplay and their uh, uh their their chops i mean all of them any of them was more disciplined than i was as a musician at that point for sure and still so, you know, it was easier for them to play with us than for us to play with them. So when we played together on the same stage, like at that Hunt show, um, you know, we were alternating sets and then we all got up together and, and just jammed out on some, you know, simple big rockers like Not Fade Away and, and had a lot of fun. So um, it was always fun to play with them. But, you know, some of their stuff was, um, you know, certainly beyond me. Steve could hang with some of it just because, uh, again, all-state drummer. Jim Hacking, bass player on, at that point, I did have a decent bass. But, uh, um, yeah, it was, it, they, were, they were over my head. Fish was evolving quickly, challenging each other and their listeners, and seeing their ambitions expand ever further with each new show. interviews you've heard in this episode were like finding different pieces of a puzzle about the early years of Fish. But as we got toward the end of this episode, there was still one piece of the puzzle missing. What about Jeff Holdsworth? 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 Jeff Holdsworth. Jeff Holdsworth. Hey, Tom. <laughs> How are you, Jeff? Good, good, good to see you. Wow, what a trip. <laughs> yeah, amazing to see you. <laughs> We had to hear from Fish's other original band member, who left Fish in 1986. So we tracked him down in Canada. Jeff rarely talks publicly about his Fish experience. We were so happy that he wanted to talk to us. Here's what he said about how things came together from his perspective. I was, you know, a year older than the guys, so I was into second and third year of electrical engineering, which um, came to U UVM thinking I either do music or 
or, or and end up a poor music teacher, unfortunately, was, or a rock star, but that didn't, neither of those panned out for me. So I always had in my mind that I should keep my doors open career-wise and study the, the uh, you know, well, my dad studied too, not that I was trying to follow in his footsteps with electrical engineering, so very much in the techie. So, so I just stayed with UVM and stayed with electrical engineering and and you know that's been my path uh, for like so so as you know Trey took a semester off due to other circumstances uh, and we kind of just rolled with that I guess we were on a hiatus for <laughs> you know a semester Jeff was a sophomore in 1983 and met Trey at Wilkes Hall on UVM's Redstone campus the two started jamming and immediately connected it would have been sometime the fall of 83, and Fishman was on Redstone campus. We knew we needed to find a drummer, we knew we needed to find a bass player. And so I think Fishman came along first, and you know, we're all just happy-go-lucky UVM students socializing, going to the, you know, the dining hall, and well, I do remember how it really happened, but uh, Fishman was, you know, definitely, um, I can't even remember if he had a drum set, I guess he did at some point there. Um, on, on campus and then um, and then so we came across Fishman and you know we got got a trio and then not too long after that and we might have been putting you know flyers out or something with the bass player wanted and so then then Mike was on the East Campus at the Living Learning Center and obviously Mike had a bunch of demo tapes from his high school and and uh, really creative stuff that um, you could see see was see was wait oh wow he's got some talent and what what have you and had had a number of bands in high school too he'd been in so Jeff grew up in Bryn Mawr Pennsylvania and played guitar in a few high school bands before going to UVM being a child of the 70s learning guitar I came you know first in a very guitar centric um, you know culture with the the guitar armies uh, you know playing Skinner and 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 playing um, definitely Almond Brothers were a huge influence um, the dead I you know I think there's I mean you know with Skinner you have three guitars so it's like <laughs> you know you had the outlaws Molly Hatchet and I listened to all those guys and played all their songs you know Greengrass and High Tides and all that stuff that was all you know stuff I grew up so I was coming from that kind of guitar duo interplay and 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 I was pretty um, um, I have a good sense of, uh, you know, I mean, like yeah, Dickie Betts of just doing the harmony, the harmonized guitar solos. So, you know, we had a number of that. I think the notable one was uh, Whipping Post. We've done that a couple times where, you know, I was doing the solos. So, so yeah, we both had a good handle on lead. Yeah, my guitar teacher's Mike Rubin was a real man of wisdom, and he was always, um, always saying to play with feeling because there's always going to be somebody that's faster. There's always going to be a, a gunslinger guitar guy that's going to be way more quicker, you know, way more, um, you know, just quick with the, the riffs and, you know, and faster. Love. So you just got to play with feeling and something like that. So I was really into that. And, you know, and then, you know, with um, the vibrato and the bending with electric guitar lead, it really is a feeling type of thing. Today, Jeff is an electrical engineer in Ottawa, Canada, and has worked with companies like IBM and Nortel, developing Bluetooth devices and other forms of wireless communication. It's it's funny, you know, I mean, everything was just moving and kind of going at its own speed, its own evolving as we go. I was evolving and, uh, you know, I did come to, to UVM to um, 
to get an engineering degree. Um, I decided that uh, I didn't I didn't want to stay in Vermont. I didn't come out of UVM with any great job offers, I have to say. So, uh, but I also decided that I didn't want to stay in um, Vermont because there were really only two engineering employers there. So I hightailed it back to Philadelphia on a, you know, on a career um, note, and I've been working in you know electrical engineering and tech technical sales and applications ever since. So fascinating feel. You know, I'd like to say that I you know some of the first antennas for Bluetooth. You know, <laughs> with uh, some clients at AT&T in Allentown. So, so I mean, it's just it's just been a, an amazing uh, ride to be th through this communications uh, revolution we've been living through. So be part of that from the technical hardware side side of things. But uh, on the other side, I mean, I was going through a lot of searching and a lot of personal kind of uh, trying to figure things out, you know, like we all are in that period, 18 to 22. Jeff left the band in 1986 to explore the country and his personal relationship with Christianity. Uh, ended up going and touring the, the uh, U.S. after university, drove up to Alaska with some UVM friends. On the way back, I was visiting some different uh, communes, if you'll call them, you know, what was the leftover of kind of some of the 70s uh, place in Spokane, Washington, Tolstoy Farm, and uh, a number of other ones, um, you know, and I just was interested in that whole communal 70s thing, uh, which, you know, isn't really a thing anymore these days. So I sort of came through, you know, going to exploring and and uh, Christianity and came through you know basically a, a born-again type of experience through through um, in, in 87 soon after that so I, I, I you know you grow up in in uh, mainline Protestant type churches and um, you, there, you realize there just has to be something more than just you know meeting there on Sunday and you know it's just it was maybe a dead time in some of these mainline churches it was you know community wise and I just felt that so maybe I feeling that so I so I really needed to search and find that out and try that so there's no no better time um, so so from that you know um, um, I was just changing all the way through that whole period. Decided I was going to take a break from electric music. So, uh, you know, I was finding I wanted to do more of the acoustic guitar and, and acoustic-based, uh, you know, kind of um, music. Um, and engineering's pretty high-paced kind of career as far as, you know, the uh, changing technologies and the dynamic business environment and uh, keeping up with it is quite honestly, it's a full-time almost lifestyle job. So, so I, you know, that, that's been most of my life till now. So the career, the guitars has been, you know, an evening <laughs> and just uh, practice, um, trying to keep my chops up a little bit, but nothing, nothing, nothing to, uh, formalized out nothing public so yeah so I tried to live the, the disciples life you know Christianity going to church and reading the Bible and, and and being very involved with Christian fellowship also Messianic Jewish fellowship which there's a lot of in Philadelphia where I was living lived in Israel for six months as a exploratory just kind of phase in my around 25 or so just you know sort of just faded into the the, the background yeah we had a little bit of a a parting of the of the ways around 87 when I visited the guys when they're living on Winooski Avenue and I kind of kind of just was going through this purging my old life of you know you have a rite of passage you kind of have to make some physical you know kind of changes or statements to the world or else it's not really real right and so so you kind of have to be real so I had to had to tell the guys that I really gone through this this um, spiritual born-again experience and, and that you know 
that I, I wasn't into what some of the darker sides of the music I was ex sensing. And I stated that to them. So I think that kind of put them a little bit on edge. And, you know, it's sort of sad because I, I'm not as in touch with the guys because of that. So uh, certainly Trey, I mean, Mike I'm closest with because we shared a lot of uh, visits and we were both EEs for a while. So I don't know, we just had crossed paths a lot. So, so, so yeah, so those were tough times leaving the band in some ways, but, uh, but it was just a different path for me. So why did Jeff make the decision to leave the band? Is multifaceted the reason that I that I left the band? I mean, I mean, and and we, we didn't really even quite us. I mean, I think think we were probably going in different directions. I mean, certainly I think towards maybe the 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 end of '86. I mean, I was there, you know, from '83 when they when we met in UVM to um, when I graduated '86. So May of '86, and and then I went off. I was going traveling in Alaska all that summer. I, you know, quite honestly, we didn't really think, didn't even speak too much about leaving. When Paige joined Fish, they played for a year as a five-piece band. Jeff had that moment that so many college students experience, the, I need to get my life together and focus on school, and the ever-present, what am I going to do with my life, man? Paige pretty much joined in the fall of 85, officially, and I'm not even sure how he got associated, but it was, I thought it was, might have been through Goddard. I know he wasn't studying in Vermont, but I think he was up there associated with Goddard or taking a class, you know, for some reason in Vermont, or maybe he just wanted to be in Vermont at this period of his, of his life. Um, but uh, he wasn't a UVM guy, and he just sort of appeared, so I presume either probably Trey invited him, and um, all of a sudden we we're five piece. I, he just showed up. Was like, cool. We got a keyboard player. That's my. They were all still at you know Goddard, so they were you know they knew they were going to be the next uh, you know semester or whatever. But I was kind of on, and um, really I don't even said we're, we're leaving. I mean, they, I knew we we're graduating, and see you guys later. I'm traveling for six months or whatever, and, and then um, uh, uh, you know I visited them. I mean, I was changing, so I was having some you know personal, and you know studying also pretty hard trying to get through engineering school. Um, and so I, I think some of the things that left a big impression of how I reacted in in practices and to maybe new originals and things like that. I mean, I just I just don't think it didn't have that much of an impression on me because I was just in a little bit in a different place. And uh, so so I, I know like there's a number of um, uh, incidents where I reacted badly and I can be pretty stubborn sometimes, I have to say. So uh, and hard headed is definitely one of my characteristics too, perhaps but um, then I just didn't react to some new thing that Trey, and I can imagine that, I just can't remember what it was. The significance of a lot of Fish's philosophy is embedded in their surrender to the flow mantra. And that's what Jeff did at the time. He was in a different chapter of his life and followed his heart. The whole thing about it is there is there's a religious element about the whole fish experience and the whole fish scene. And I think it's, uh, you know, our society has evolved from, you know, 50s, 60s mainstream God and Christianity and church being kind of our gathering place. And, you know, in a secular society where people aren't believing that, there's got to be something else. And I really think the fish, you know, is sort of a community and a, a spiritual and community that... So it becomes kind of a religious type of thing. There really are some parallels to that that the fish communities um, serving so it becomes a religion you know you know it, in some sense the other thing I was gonna mention is that you know um, music kind of bypasses the intellect right you know it goes right to the heart so it can communicate in ways that, that you can't really do with words or intellect or 
pictures maybe or something like that so there's something very spiritual about music and the same with spiritual i would consider spirituality is it's like a channel it's like speaking a different language um or it's like learning mathematics um you know the whole dichotomy of um science and religion well there is no dichotomy i mean they're diff just different avenues to to trying to discover a bigger truth so you know you hear one truth through one through one channel and you, you see it a different shadow in a different channel or through, through a different channel you're you know saying reading reading philosophical literature or something but it's it's you're trying to see the bigger thing so all truth comes from god if you will it's <laughs> what what i would say so you take it all you can don't have to <laughs> uh, cut it off um so there's a lot of parallels there which which my path you know I, I even though i didn't follow the uh what the guys did i, I still feel very kin to you know kind of the whole thing that they're the, the, where they're coming at On December 1st, 2003, just one night before Fish's 20th anniversary, Jeff rejoined his bandmates on stage for the first time in 17 years. The crowd roared as he was introduced. We had a, um, a very, very wonderful friend of ours that we haven't played with in like 15 years up here. This is Jeff Holdsworth. Yeah, who is it? You know, I don't get to go to, to, go to stadiums and sit and stand in front of the people for a set. So, uh, so yeah, it was incredible. Um, I, I have to say, I, I sent some of my old UVM roommates, or they they assigned themselves to go and uh, and and. Uh, 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 one of my uh, Bill Jaffe, one of one of my roommates at UVM, um, and Price Hunneman, and they were kind of like uh, in touch with Paige and Trey or something in Burlington, and like said, "Hey, you should definitely call Jeff up," and they kind of like put a little bug in their ear, <laughs> and, and so uh, Mike had trouble getting holding me, but he finally did on the weekend before the gig it was a Monday night. I actually ended up quitting my job due to that gig. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it was it was only a one night invite as it turns out, but, but <laughs> it's just as well. It was it was actually high time. So so at this point, no, it was an amazing month, you know. And I I actually uh, had the backstage pass, so I figured I would just uh, travel on over to Boston. And my friend Bill Jaffe and I went went backstage and hung out with Amy and other folks back there. So that's really really cool to see see those people for a reunion. Uh, yeah, some a scene that I hadn't really seen much at all you know so so yeah really cool it's all positive great great experience that night jeff played some of the fish songs he wrote to a much bigger audience than he was used to two of the songs that we play very frequently um some of you may know and some of me you may not know were written by jeff and originally sung by jeff and uh, we're going to do them now <laughs> Thank you. 
you know, there are really only two songs of mine originals that have made it to the band, which you know, thankfully became somewhat popular. Was was indeed Possum, which I wrote in high school, and Camel Walk, which I sort of took a riff from my guitar teacher Mike Rubin and um, and you know put it into a song format, uh, made a bridge. Then Trey really reworked the uh, the the lead. So I have to say, a lot of the lead um, instrumental was was Trey's uh, mind share and, and thought. So uh, so. He added quite a bit to the instrumental part of it, but yeah, but but the camel walk, the groove, which is a really neat chord progression um, and kind of funky groove riff that I've had since the mid '70s from my really my guitar teacher Mike Rubin. So so yeah, so those those are my main two um, contributions to the the uh, repertoire of the of the band. Jeff is a happy man with an interesting and rewarding tech career and a beautiful family and life in Canada. It's easy to mistake Jeff's exit from Fish as a missed opportunity, but he doesn't view it that way at all. Oh yeah, life's too short to be be bitter. You got you got to look at all the positives and build on that. <laughs> so <laughs> for sure. You know, I, I keep a little music stuff around, but I'm not too active um, in anything. So, but I do have it as a, you know, I have, I, I have it as an aspiration to get a little bit more involved. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> in some sort of music, however it goes, you know. The history of fish has been documented in many forms but we had so much fun and hope you did too, hearing the voices of some of these key people in Fish's early growth. From the UVM dorms and the excitement of Burlington to Goddard and the ranch, we aim to shed a little bit more light on what it was like to be there in the 1980s in Vermont. The way these five guys, which then became four, came together, melded musically and philosophically, and then built something enduring and magical. Not just a career, not just a great band, as Jeff said, Fish is sort of a religious experience, and now we can just start to see how the stars align to bring the guys together. In the next episode of Undermine, we'll take a look at some of the seminal shows from the early 1980s. If you've been to a Fish show, you've felt the barriers between the audience and the band break down. Is the band controlling the fans, or are the fans controlling the band? Fun and great music are the only guarantees Anything else can happen, and it usually does. There weren't always huge crowds, and in those early shows, you can start to hear what fish will become musically, and how they infuse musical precision, humor, fan engagement, and blazed on. And most importantly, they surrendered to the flow and let music make the decisions. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance from Noah Eckstein. Production assistance from Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. A special thank you to all of our interviewees. We'll see you next week. <laughs>